Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, I'm Helen. And I'm Stephen. And you're listening to the New Statesman podcast. This week, I talked to Obama's National Security Advisor, Ben Rhodes, about Syria, Iran and Brexit. And we discuss whether or not Britain could end up with no deal. I'm joined by Ben Rhodes, who is Deputy National Security Advisor to Barack Obama, his foreign policy speechwriter and a key architect of the Iran nuclear deal. He's also the author of The World As It Is, which is published now by Bodyhead. Hello, Ben. Welcome to the podcast. One of the things I really liked about your book, which is surprisingly funny, apart from other things, which is nice thing about books about foreign policy, you start chapter five with this great question, which is one of those questions that's incredibly simple, but actually really forces you to think about fundamentals, which is what is US foreign policy? And you kind of describe, you know, the fact that there's US aid about kind of HIV prevention programs and encouraging trade deals and also obviously military matters. But can you articulate what the fundamental principles of the Obama White House's foreign policy were? What were your basic assumptions about the world and what you wanted to do? So the way I would sum it up is essentially Obama felt like he was taking office at a time when the direction of U.S. foreign policy was unsustainable. The combination of the Iraq and Afghanistan wars and the financial crisis had us in a crisis point where we were rapidly losing altitude. Um, we were pouring resources into unsuccessful wars. We had been diminished around the world because of Iraq and because of the financial crisis. Um, and essentially, the project of the Obama administration was to rationalize how much we dedicated resources to fighting terrorism and fighting wars in the Middle East, draw that down, try to rebuild the American economy, uh, and then reposition the United States around the world to sustain our leadership by providing more focus on the Asia-Pacific, trying to avoid wars through agreements like the Iran deal, trying to build collective action on things like climate change through the Paris Climate Accords. Um, so again, to shorthand it, uh, we wanted to essentially stop the trend of America pouring its resources into Middle Eastern wars and reposition the United States to effectively lead on a broader set of issues and in a broader set of regions. So one of the things you mentioned there is the Iran nuclear deal, and there's a lot of that is covered in the book. Obviously, it's something that Donald Trump is now frantically trying to unpick. Yeah. Can you explain to me why that was seen as such a centerpiece of US foreign policy? I think because essentially it accomplished two 
things. You know, number one, it prevented a war with Iran. And, uh, you know, as I describe in the book, we, we were on a collision course with Iran. Um, the Israeli government came quite close to bombing Iran uh, during our administration. Uh, had there not been some uh, progress in stopping the acceleration of their nuclear program, um, whether under the Obama administration or the uh, subsequent administration, uh, we felt like we were inexorably leading towards another military conflict in the Middle East. And a war with Iran would be much more complicated than even the wars that we've uh, fought in Afghanistan and Iraq. It also dealt with nuclear proliferation and and showing that you could, through a diplomatic agreement, stop the spread of nuclear weapons. Um, and, and, and coming on the heels of you know, North Korea having tested a nuclear weapon in 2006, India and Pakistan, you know, the, the, the capacity to show that you could put together an arms control agreement that could work, um, you know, was also critically uh, in our interest. So you talk about stopping this rush to war. And also one of the kind of frequent antagonists in the book is Israel's leader, Benjamin Netanyahu, who you say was almost kind of acting like a Republican, right? He was like an extension yeah. of the Republican Party. I remember watching his quite startling PowerPoint presentation a couple of uh, weeks ago. Do you now feel that that rush to war is back on? Is that how serious that situation is there now? Yeah, I do. I, and I think there was the, the, the PowerPoint presentation was was absurd. It, you know, it, it basically he packaged together a bunch of things that happened before the Iran nuclear deal that the Iran nuclear deal solved to argue that we had to pull out of the Iran nuclear deal. And, and the, the theatrics, you know, there's a commonality between Trump and Netanyahu and the, 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 there's a kind of a reality show approach to politics and even the most important matters of foreign policy. You know, so to stand there with these PowerPoint slides and, uh, you know, I, I think it kind of diminishes the discourse on, on these important issues. I think that what worries me now with Iran is there are many different flashpoints. Um, it's not necessarily that we'll wake up in the U.S. and Israel will have decided to bomb Iran's nuclear facilities, um, although we could get back to that point if the Iranians restart their nuclear program. It's that in Syria in Iraq, in Yemen, in the Straits of Hormuz, there, there are many different places where there could be some flare-up between the United States and Iran or Israel and Iran that escalates into a military conflict. And I think without the nuclear deal in place, um, the, the situation is that much more unstable and the, the risk of conflict is that much higher. So do you think Donald Trump is trying to unpick the nuclear deal for foreign policy reasons or because it's something that is seen as a triumph for Obama and therefore he simply doesn't like it on those grounds? I think it's domestic policy reasons. Uh, I have absolutely zero confidence that Donald Trump has read the Iran deal. I don't think if he was sitting here, he could tell you what was in it. Um, I was always uh, hopeful that U.S. journalists would literally just ask him, what is the Iran deal? Because he would just say it was a catastrophe, it was the worst deal ever. I don't think he could describe its provisions, you know, how many centrifuges are removed, what the inspections regime is. And the fact that he goes to North Korea... Uh, you know, there's a there's a dystopian uh, reality to American politics uh, that I live most days, but none more so than, frankly, when he tears up one deal, calls it a catastrophe that has it's 160 pages long, has detailed inspections regimes and timelines, goes to meet the North Korean leader, gets a 400 page statement uh, with no inspections, no timelines and declares it the greatest thing that's ever happened. I think it was about domestic politics. One, his antipathy to anything Obama did, that, that's one of his organizing principles. If Obama did it, I'm against it. Uh, and two, you know, his appeal to certain right wing constituencies in the United States. Uh, Sheldon Adelson 
has been the most prominent supporter of both Bibi Netanyahu and Donald Trump. Um, these so things, he's a billionaire who's got lots of, has he got casinos? Casinos, right? he's a billionaire casino magnate who's been, you know, was the largest Republican contributor to both Mitt Romney and then Donald Trump, uh, completely pro-Netanyahu, funds a lot of the pro-Netanyahu media in Israel as well, and has long had a hostility to Iran and the, the nuclear deal. And has actually called for dropping nuclear weapons on Iran, but we'll put that to the side for a second. Um, so I think it was just, a, it's about, for Trump, it's about domestic politics and, and poking Obama and pleasing a, a certain constituency and, um, and the consequences are not exactly what he's thinking about. So that's my next question, which is, do you think that Donald Trump, this is a question that has obsessed us, is does Donald Trump have a, have a vision and it's one that we disagree with, or is he purely a creature of kind of reaction, which is something you talk about even in the Obama White House, which was obviously trying to be strategic, that you are just so much at the mercy of events. Does he just go, I like a photo call, I'm going to do a photo call, and that's the level he's operating at? Or do you think there is some deeper strategic calculation behind some of the stuff that he's doing? I don't think there's strategic calculation at all. Um, I, I, I do think, though, some of what he does is for spectacle and for attention and disruption and to go against Obama. There are certain things that Trump always comes back to. There is a worldview that he does have. I don't think it's, I wouldn't describe it as strategic, but it is quite important to notice that trade, immigration, uh, antipathy to alliances, they're common threads, things that he can't resist returning to. Like nobody in his administration with maybe a couple of very small exceptions are pushing him into these trade wars. Like that's Donald Trump. He's, he believes, you know, he believes in that type of approach to trade. He clearly is hostile to immigration. He launched his campaign essentially as a crusade against uh, immigration to the United States. He clearly feels no regard for alliances and has a greater, you know, affinity for strong men around the world. And so I think that there's, there's not a strategic vision, but but these things add up to somebody who is profoundly out of step with the role that the U.S. president has played in the world for 70 years. You know, George W. Bush, I didn't uh, like his policies, and I could argue actually that the Iraq war was more catastrophic than anything Donald Trump has done in terms of an individual policy yet, yet. But George yes, Bush, yeah, a very important, yeah, you know, give him time. Yeah, exactly. But George Bush was recognizably like the American president. Um, Trump is hostile to the very elements of the international order that America is supposed to to lead. You know, alliances, the international trading system, the free movement of peoples, and that's why you know my advice to my European friends and you know here in the UK is he's not going to change. You know, like he's not. Uh, you know, I've seen Theresa May and Emmanuel Macron, you know, try to uh, build a friendly relationship in the hopes that, you know, they can get a, avoid a trade dispute or convince them to stay in the Iranian nuclear deal or uh, to address climate change. It's not going to work. Donald Trump has a hostility to those things. Who's his version of you? Because there's a bit in the book about, you know, this idea you have this mind meld with Obama. You were seen as somebody who knew what he would be thinking about something and your kind of power in the White House derived from that. Who is running the Trump White House? Um, is anyone running the Trump White House? Yeah. I mean, I, 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 I kind of know which I, answer I, makes the, me feel better, to be honest. So it's like a combination of uh, the Fox News Channel and Stephen Miller. Um, 
Uh, <laughs> um, so this is very young, uh, yeah, I, very hawkish on immigration advisor. Yeah, he's basically a white supremacist, anti-immigrant uh, guy um, who's behind uh, the, the immigration crackdowns, but has also been a speechwriter. I mean, I, I hate, I don't want to compare myself to Steve Miller because then I, I wouldn't like myself anymore. <laughs> right. um, but, he, you know, he does play this role of both a speechwriter and a strategist and picks up policy issues. I, I do think that the the point, though, you know, I make light of it, it but um, there's not, you know, Donald Trump is kind of singularly uh, somebody who resists being managed or controlled. Um, the pace of the turnover there, I mean, the, I was there for eight years, which is probably too long um, for mental and physical uh, um, health, but um, the pace of the turnover is just extreme. I mean, you can't, you know, multiple national security advisors, you know, chiefs of staff, I think they've been through five or six communications directors or so at this point. So he likes to have this rotating cast of characters around him, I think, um, and to not be overly dependent on any one advisor because he wants to be constantly the center of attention. He's kind of a medieval king. That's how I tend to think of him. And he likes to have the individual barons. But as soon as any individual baron seems to be getting a bit uppity, then that kind yeah. of, then you kind of put them on watch that you might have them executed. That's right. And they fall out of favor and they come back. But this is another important thing that, again, I advise my friends who are trying to deal with Trump outside of the United States and the UK and Europe. You cannot trust that any of these people actually speak for Trump or that they can actually deliver. You know, normally in a US administration, Foreign governments can figure out, okay, who do I know if they tell me that this is a U.S. position, I can trust that that actually is the case. And it's usually a pretty big group of people. Here, you know, it's not clear that anybody can actually speak for Trump. Not even uh, Ivanka Trump or Jared Kushner. Absolutely not, actually. You know, they've they've been, uh, you know, Ivanka Trump was telling countries that she was going to convince her father to stay in the Paris Climate Accords. You know, she developed a close relationship with Justin Trudeau and then um, the Canadians have obviously got nothing out of that. Um, so, I, you know, the problem, and I remember, you know, I remember when the Iran nuclear stuff was going on, uh, you know, Trump was making his decision about whether to stay in the deal or not. There was this huge State Department negotiation underway where the State Department was sending people to Europe to meet with European governments to construct what the changes to the deal could keep the United States in. And Trump didn't even know that that was happening, apparently. You know, I mean, so... You have to be mindful that that, that you know, he's the only decision maker, and there there may be other interlocutors who could tell you what you want to hear about trade or Iran or what have you. But you know you have to recognize that ultimately Trump is going to make his up up his own mind. And in terms of the your kind of the legacy that you feel that you built there, there's a lot of time devoted in the book about your discussions in Syria. The idea there were no good options in Syria, that intervention was something that was really wrestled with. How do you feel about that decision now? Um, you know, nobody can feel at all positive about the situation in Syria. So, and part of what I wrestle with in the book is like, could we have done something different diplomatically, you know, before things really went off the rails in Syria? Um, I have to say, though, um, the basic, you know, I described this evolution I went through from being an advocate for intervention in Syria to essentially being worn down in a way to the logic of Obama's position, which was that our military intervention is not going to make things better, could make things worse, and at a minimum is going to have us in the middle of another significant war in the Middle East. Um, I think that bears out in the sense that, you know, a cruise missile strike 
into Syria was not going to change things. And frankly, Trump has proven that. He's launched two of them and nothing has changed. Um, the one thing that is not the case is we're not in a, another large war in the Middle East in Syria. Um, and you know, that that very well would have likely been what happened if the United States went into Syria in 2012, 2013. We'd still be there, just like we are still in Afghanistan, just like to a lesser extent, we're still in Iraq. So, you know, I, while I'm uh, certainly not happy with the legacy of, of how Syria is, um, I do think that President Obama felt like we cannot just keep getting into one war after another in one Middle Eastern country after another. Th- th- there has to be some end to this. It's not working. We're not able to fix places with our military. Um, and it's defining who we are in the world um, to be in this kind of state of permanent war. Um, and, and frankly, if I find some fault, I, I wish we were more drawn down. I, I don't think we should even be in Afghanistan anymore. Um, I don't know what we're doing there almost two decades after 9-11. Um, uh, so to me, that, that is the, the element that, that I agree with is, is the, the, the decision to, to, to try to, to stop this endless cycle of American wars. Because one of the things I found most extraordinary was uh, Obama's description of uh, Libya, you know, a war in which yeah. everything went quote unquote right in the sense of, you know, very few American casualties. Yeah. Um, it, it was a clean operation in some senses and still the reaction at home was extremely negative. Yeah. And here in Britain, you know, you have a Labour Party leader, an opposition leader, who one of the reasons that he got elected was that he was a very strong opponent of the Iraq war and was seen as a clean break from Tony Blair and that support for intervention in alliance with America. Do you see that isolationist turn increasing? Will will there ever be a a turn back against that, do you think, in in the forces of the world that are happening now? Yeah, you know, what I think was um, interesting to live is that there was a reaction in public opinion in Britain and the United States against the Iraq war that went far beyond the reaction in like the decision-making class. Um, And I think that that was, that's part of what happened in Syria is that the, 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 the momentum of kind of the, the foreign policy establishment advisors was we have to go back in, you know, we have to go into Syria and Obama, you know, when the British parliament voted against allowing David Cameron to do that and Obama decided to go to Congress, he was basically making the point that I can't go to war if the public won't support it, you know, because it won't work. Um, this is a democracy. And, and so I actually think we have to be responsive to public opinion. And if the lesson that the public has taken from Iraq is that we shouldn't do this again, I think that that's fair. And I think, you know, I think that that demands some correction. What I take issue with, though, is it's this kind of presented particularly by, you know, the Trumps of the world, although he's all over the map on it, but it's not to me a question of isolationism or Iraq-style military interventions. Mm. Part of what Obama was trying very hard to define is what does it mean to be really engaged in the world without <laughs> falling into Iraq-style military interventions. But that's what I find really fascinating. I mean, we have this conversation quite a lot on the podcast. Is that, and you mentioned it in the book, you know, Rwanda and the decision yeah. not to intervene there, or the Democratic Republic of Congo, there is never the kind of visceral public outrage about the conflicts that you let happen, that yeah. you you know, the massacres and the genocides that you let happen, yeah. than there is in the ones in which you, because if, if your hands aren't on that, it's sort of presumed you had nothing to do with it, even yeah. though inaction is its own. Well, the, the, the fascinating thing about this is that if we had gone into Syria, for all the criticism that Obama gets for not going to Syria, I think he would have faced a lot more for going in. You know, the public would not have liked that at all. I don't think it would have been at all, even if you believe that 
it was justified on the merits. I, I think it is intellectually dishonest to suggest that some bombing campaign or no fly zone would have done anything. Uh, you know, Assad was deeply entrenched and backed by Russia and Iran. Assad was killing his people. The only way to stop that would be to go in and take out Assad. I mean, I, you know, I, I, so I, th- that's the one thing that I think, you know, um, people have to, to acknowledge here. People, when you're, when you're debating an action, there's always an effort to try to make some more palatable public option seem like it would solve the problem, right? You know, a cruise missile strike. Um, no, I think it would have been a pretty significant military intervention. Um, and then I think, you know, you could be faced with the worst of both worlds where, you're not preventing the loss of life and you're in a war and the war is unpopular and the public is turned against it and it becomes uh, particularly divisive. To me, um, you know, what, what that argues for though is, is how, do we, how do we identify as the United States or, or as an international community um, the ways to, to, to better, you know, I think what I learned in government is that once something like a Syria conflict begins, it's very hard to end it, you know. Um, in other words, once the the atrocity is in motion, um, uh, you know, in Libya we had an option that that worked because essentially we had some people in a particularly geographic space that could be protected if Gaddafi couldn't reach that geographic space. And so, yes, there are sometimes options, but I, I think like a, a what we tried to develop is much greater early warning capacity that if we see the elements converging that could lead to a civil war or a, a mass atrocity, that there's some front end diplomatic intervention by the international community. We were doing some things that are very unglamorous um, by the end of the administration, but I think very important to significantly build up UN peacekeeping capability. Again, this is never, never going to be some big salient political talking point in the United States, but um, I would rather invest a significant amount of resources in giving the UN a much more deployable capability, you know, because what we found is there were some limited interventions into Mali or the Central African Republic that I do think saved a fair amount of lives that depended on a mixture of US logistical capability uh, and either the UN or another country like France, you know, saying, I'll step up and do this. So I, I think to, 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 to prevent you know, the future atrocities, you know, it's not just going to be the binary question of is the U.S. president going to go to war in this country or not to stop killing. It's going to be can the U.S. working with other countries organize a capability uh, to try to to stop these things before they get out of control. Well, we haven't got very much time left, but I want to ask you a little bit about British politics because there's a great quote um, where you and President Obama come over during the EU referendum campaign. Boris Johnson writes about you know saying that this half Kenyan or part Kenyan guy, no wonder he removed the bust of Churchill from the White House. Uh, he points out he moved it somewhere and he put it Buster Martin yeah. Luther King in that place instead. And then Obama uses this phrase about, you know, trade deals being at the back of the queue. Yeah. And then you're both quite rude about Boris Johnson, which I enjoyed enormously, yeah. saying that he's like Trump, maybe with better hair, which is a very arguable point, I would say. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but what were your impressions of other British politicians? If you were preparing a briefing pack on, you know, Theresa May, what would you be saying about her now? Uh, um, I, you know, I felt like Theresa May... Uh, in my limited engagements, you know, seemed to be someone who was trying to convince themselves that they were comfortable in the position that she was in, in every sense of that uh, definition, in the sense that here's someone who was kind of a tentative Remain supporter, who's suddenly going to have their prime ministership defined by Brexit, you know, here's someone 
who is prime minister in large part because the people like Boris Johnson, responsible for Brexit, knew well enough that it's not going to be attractive to be the prime minister during Brexit. You know, here, you know, so here was someone who was basically trying to figure out how to fill the role of this job that she didn't necessarily expect to have in order to carry out a policy that she didn't agree with, that she now had to be the biggest proponent of, that was going to define whether or not she was a successful prime minister, and that if she's intellectually honest, she knows it's not going to work. <laughs> you know, that is not a pretty, that's not a setup uh, for success. So, you know, you, whether that makes you sympathetic for her or not, um, that was the reality. And the final question, you got, um, you were profiled by the New York Times, I think, in 2016, and it was one that caused a lot of pushback because you were quite critical of the press at the time. You said, yeah. you know, a lot of expertise has been hollowed out. You know, the average person that you're, is coming to you for information about Moscow or wherever. Yeah. They don't have, you know, the foreign bureaus are withered away. People have just covered political campaigns. And like I say, it provoked a lot of outrage. But I, I mean, I, I think it's a, <laughs> a criticism which has been borne out by subsequent events. And there's a lot about fake news in the yeah. book. Yes. What practically are the steps do you think that could, ha- you know, what were you doing in order to kind of do rebuttals of that? And what could change about the architecture of how news works to make us less susceptible to kind of in, you know, Russian style info smog? Yeah. I mean, just a nice easy one to end. Yeah, with. no, it's, a, it's, it's like one of the most important questions in Western democracy today, because in the US, what I saw was a combination of the trivialization of our news media. You know, as they're hollowed out, as they're closing foreign bureaus, as everything then just becomes covered as a reality show. You know, he criticized him, and she criticized uh, him, and 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 people fighting on cable television, and that's what Trump stepped into, right? If if, if politics is only about the food fight and not about what the consequences of these things are, well, then we might as well have the guy who can yell the loudest and tell people the best. It's not a coincidence that Trump won in that environment. At the same time, that. The internet and social media have evolved so as to allow somebody uh, to live in a hermetically sealed bubble where even if everything they're consuming is wrong or false or a conspiracy theory, um, it's what they believe because, you know, all their news sources are are funneled by to them by an algorithm. And the Russians, essentially, that's what they did. They they said, okay, we're going to take a whole bunch of content and we're going to just fire it into that ecosystem and enough people will consume it to be effective. I think how do you solve that problem? the, the reality is uh, that, um, that, that ultimately politics and media are going to be responsive to people. And um, my hope is that uh, people will be shopping for different politicians and different types of media content. You know, that, that in other words, nothing gets the attention of uh, media more than if there's an alternative success, you know, that, that if, whether in the United States, we do see some developing alternative media and many of it, you know, is in, some of it is in the podcast space. Um, some of it is in new publications, uh, uh, you know, and so I, I frankly think that just as I'd like to see people vote in new politicians, I would like to see people kind of seek out and, and validate a different approach to media. Um, because otherwise the feedback loop is just going to get worse and worse. There's one bit in the book which I found was quite bleak, but I also weirdly found quite optimistic, which is this idea that people wouldn't have voted for Trump in a crisis, you know, saying, well, yeah. actually, maybe we've, you know, what we've done is we've given him an economy that's now too solid after the financial crisis, unemployment's going yeah. down, your jobs um, are doing better. And I kind of think that's my, what, what people, that people will sort of essentially decide that they can't muck about yeah. if it gets sufficiently bad. That's that's what I'm staking all my hope about the future I think of that's Western right. democracy. I, know, and I think that's right. I mean, I think that like, 
you know, when, when, when things are going pretty well and yeah, they're challenges, but they're not hugely consequential in their own lives, then the politics can become a reality show. And let's take the cartoon. When you're in a 2008 financial crisis, you're like, we better get some smart people in there. You know, unfortunately, I think the outcome of both Brexit and Trump is going to be hugely negative consequences in the US and UK. And then there'll be some changes in leadership. And unfortunately, the people who come in are going to have to deal with that inheritance. And right-wing demagogues will say, you know, see their response. I mean, Obama was getting blamed for wage stagnation years after the financial crisis as if he created the financial crisis, you know. So um, I think you will see that pendulum swing back. Um, you know, watching the, I'll close on it, the, watching the Brexit debate here is so fascinating because it is still debated as if it's not going to have the consequences. It's still about like, what does Boris say today and Theresa May and this and that. No, this is going to sink in here in a year and two years and three years. These things that the Brexit campaign promised are not going to happen. Um, and then, and only then, frankly, do I think you'll have some correction. And so you're living in this kind of transitory moment before the Brexit has happened, where you don't have to live with the consequences yet. And, 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 and you're in this kind of weird, you know, air pocket, yeah. <laughs> where it's like all the political machinations of Brexit without any of the real world consequences of it. Yeah, and in that case, it, I mean, Ken Clark, who's one of the biggest opponents of Brexit, said it, in that case, it reminds him of Iraq in the sense that he thinks yes. that public opinion will sour decisively against it when people begin to realise what's what they've actually been sold. But anyway, yeah. we've run out of time. Okay. I have to say, you got gypped when you were in the White House for being somebody who'd done a creative writing course, right? And people said, yeah, you know, yeah, it, yeah, yeah, it yeah. has paid off yeah. because the book is a really yeah, great read. Maybe it was worth all that criticism. Yeah. yeah, so that was Ben Rhodes and the book is The World As It Is. <laughs> Thanks so much. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. And now for a section we like to call... You ask us. Yeah. This question this week comes from uh, Ben Stevenson, who listens to us in America. So hopefully we'll have enjoyed our American-themed section earlier in the show. And it's about uh, the possibility of no deal. Is there now a stronger possibility of no deal? We're obviously recording this ahead of the Chequers Crunch Summit, which is so crunchy that it seems to be lasting from like, what, 8.30 in the morning till 10 o'clock at night. I don't know if anyone's allowed to go out for a wee at any point, but they seem to be basically saying they're going to lock all the cabinet in the room together until they agree. Yeah, so essentially it's a kind of like no sleep till consensus slash Brooklyn. No sleep until uh, a, a form of fudge which barely holds the Conservatives together. Until Michelle Barnier shoots it down two hours later? Yeah, because I mean this, like one of the, I mean there are so many kind of like failures of discourse and the Conservative Party and indeed large swathes of British political journalism, right? Then ultimately... The choice is low regulatory freedom, high access, high regulatory freedom, low access, the access. Then the government further reduced its freedom for manoeuvre by going, we don't want border infrastructure on the island of Ireland and we don't want a customs order on the Irish Sea, which means that you have signed up to 
high regulatory, you, you've signed up to the high regulatory convergence, aka something approaching a customs union. If you don't actually call, it, if you call it a fruftum union. Yeah. But okay, my question to you is, how nuts is Jacob Rees-Mogg? Um, and does it matter? So I, I'm not going to comment on how um, nuts Jacob Rees-Mogg is for the candid reason I don't think I've spoken to him for longer than five minutes in aggregate. So I'm just not well placed, and because obviously, like, there's there's always an element of people pretending to be more, you know, politically extreme than they are, and in some cases, they're just being sincere. Yeah, but madman theory only works if people do genuinely think you might be a madman. However, right? So there's the kind of important question is: Are there? Because whatever happens, Labour will vote against the final deal, right? That you know, then McCluskey explicitly uh, said that at Unite conference that has been. The thing that, you know, everyone in the leader's office, everyone in the front bench has been saying, you know, basically since year dot. I mean, Emily Thornbury's remarks at Chatham House, which I think people just wildly got the wrong end of the stick on. She didn't go, we might vote for it. She went, the problem is the withdrawal agreement will be blah, blah, blah. So it won't will technically to, fail the it four tests. Uh, fail the tests. She wasn't saying this in a kind of like, therefore we'll have to vote it. She was essentially... It'll be really hard to give our rationale for why we're voting against it, which we yeah. plan to do. But but they will vote against it because it is the only, both from where their parliamentary party is, where their electoral coalition is, where their own uh, ambiguous position on it is. It just there is there is no universe in which it is not in late in which there is ever a situation in which it is not both in Labour's interests, but also the only available. And they won't succumb Option. to kind of Article 50 style screaming around about how you're blocking Brexit by not voting for it. I think the thing is, is what they will um, say is that we they voted for Article 50. They voted for the various things to facilitate Brexit happening. I imagine there'll be some front bench amendment of the kind of like, we love Brexit, we're well into Brexit. Which just will not look, this Brexit. Just not this Brexit, which they will vote for and will be defeated, but will, of course, be the thing that they will then say to people like, say, Gareth Snell, look, you can vote for this. This is something which says we're into leaving, but now we need to try and defeat the government. So that, obviously, the Lib Dems will vote against, uh, for other reasons, the SNP will vote against, Clyde Cumber will vote against, Caroline Lucas will vote against. So you only need seven to lose seven Conservative MPs over the side, in theory. Uh, obviously, there may be some Labour defections the other way round. I, uh, to be honest, doubt it because it's just so difficult to vote. Like, this So this is the kind of test about whether you're kind of Anna Soubry's, Dominic Greaves, Nicky Morgan's. I think it's such a bad deal that they don't want to put their name to it. Oh, no, I think that there is no possibility of Tory Remainers voting against the final deal. Right. Uh, with the exceptions, perhaps, of Anna Soubry and Ken Clark. Because, and I realise that every week I've been saying I will do my what level of Tory Remainer slash Labour Lever are you, right? But there's essentially... But your... Ken Clark is the only Tory who voted not to trigger Article 50. Yeah. So he's like he's on record as saying it's a terrible idea and it shouldn't happen full stop. Yeah, and Soobs has basically said, um, I can't believe I just used the word Soobs, uh, has said that she regrets triggering it and she wouldn't do it again. And if you look at... I mean, she is essentially self-radicalising, right? If you look at the various divisions, she has gone from like... Yeah writing a stern article and then not voting, writing a stern article and abstaining to just being like, I don't care if Dominic Grieve thinks he's got a compromise. I'm going to vote um, against anyway. But but on both sides, it is one thing to vote for an amendment to keep us in the EEA 
or you know for you know or to add something to the queen's speech against the whip from corbyn or the whip from may it is quite another on what will be a huge event in the life of Parliament to go the other way. The do you think it's just a take it or leave it deal? Do you think that's what it's going to come down to? It's not going to. You're not going to be able to amend it well, in so, any way. You, so it will be amendable because ultimately the person who decides if uh, something which comes before the House is amendable is the Speaker, who loves banter. Who, yeah, who and is 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 never ever going to not say that it won't be amendable. I just think when you look at, I kind of this is why you ages ago I kind of was like it's really important sometimes to. And often one does just use Labour and Corbyn as coterminous. But there are kind of times where you have to remember that a political party and its leaders are slightly different mm. actors. And I can't really work out a situation in which if you are the leader of the Labour Party, a Conservative backbench MP, a Labour backbench MP, where, you, where the decisions you take around the meaningful vote aren't in reality really sharply limited. Because you vote against the deal if you're a Conservative MP and you just enter a constitutional and political crisis, which probably leads to an election which you don't want. And also you have voted with, uh, with uh, a Labour leadership, which you loathe. So you can't really do that. If you're the Labour leadership, you can't really vote people to vote with the government on Brexit because that. That is just there. It, so you're wholly... signing up to a deal that you think is terrible, that then people can hold against you forever. Like, yeah. I don't see why, you'd, if you were Labour, you would want your hands dipped in yeah, that it's blood. It's totally different from the Article 50 thing of we agree with the principle. This, and I imagine they will have a line quite similar to the one that Wilson had, which is he agreed with the principle of joining, but he objected to the terms mm. that Heath had negotiated. And I imagine that Labour will will disinter, agree with the principle of leaving, disagree with the terms of exit. And it is really difficult to work out when you think about what the 260 different Labour MPs want, what the position you can have other than that. Abstaining just makes you look like an idiot. Um, voting for, you've bound yourself uh, to it. All that's left is to have a form of words which allows everyone who's saying they're voting against it to stop it to vote against it, and everyone who's voting against it because they're well into Brexit, but just not this Brexit to vote against it. So then the question then presumably becomes, if you assume that the final deal will get signed off, whatever the final deal oh, is, no, so this is, providing it's not... So that that is the flip side. Because right. there's a, there is one other group, which is conservative Brexiteers. Which is like the European Research Group yeah. wing of kind of proper... They love the Brexit. And they are, they are you know, one of the reasons why we are in this situation is, uh, as this phrase, which I'm sure people who get my free morning email are tired of reading or hearing, uh, but the, They're crazy some, like wizards? Some, no, something that someone in Cameron Downing suit said to me in 2015 when they were like, oh, you know, you people continually talk about how we haven't shown enough courage to stand up to these people. They said, but you should be complaining about pro-European conservative MPs. They said, because they're never willing to be suicide bombers against their own government, whereas ultimately we have to do what these people want because they are. And, and that hasn't changed. The question is whether or not seven of them are willing to be suicide bombers against their own government. I think that's a really hard question to answer because you have to think that they have to have some calculation that if it all goes completely catastrophically, it might slip away from them, right? And actually, once you're out of the formal structures of the EU, it's easy to then devote the rest of your political career to getting further and further and further away. I would say that's easier than kind of just going, chuck it all up in the air and wonder who knows where we'll land, maybe with a Corbyn government again. Well, the, the, the odd thing about what I would do if I were advising on how to make, how to, if I was advising a Brexiteer on how to future-proof their pro, their project, is they weirdly are essentially identical to the things I would advise any Remainer desperately hoping to overrun it, which is one, 
it's in everyone's interest to have a, a long transition. And then you hope you can win the argument because transition is just deeply undesirable in lots of ways, right? Because you are a rule taker, because it will chafe against um, British voters and British politicians' idea of Britain as a power player, et cetera, et cetera. And there will at some point be a regulation that works for the 27 that we would if we were a 28 have vetoed and then comes into force, right? There, there are lots and lots of things you can do to push the argument either towards we'd be better off in or we'd be better off being more out. However, because transition could go either way in terms of the remain leave argument, there are a lot of leavers who do have this sense of just push, 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 and we will will be will will worry about fixing the mess on the carpet later. I mean, of course, I agree that is crazy because um, yeah, it is. And again, I think I'm becoming a broken record on reasons why I really do not think it matters whether or not. Jeremy, well, I say whether or not. Obviously, Jeremy Corbyn is a Eurosceptic, but I mean... Like, but I think it, the point you but, made in your, your column a couple of weeks ago is the right one, which is that he will not, in the same way he wouldn't spend an ounce of political credibility on the Remain campaign, I don't think he's going to spend an ounce of political credibility on sticking up for some form of hard Brexit. I think it's just so completely alien to what he wants to do with his project that I just don't, he will just take whichever one, as he sees it, kind of gets it over with first and then he can get on with his stuff. The thing is, yeah, he's only about as Eurosceptic as the average Labour MP is uh, pro-European. Now, we can all pause to reflect on how effective and how much energy the average Labour MP has been willing to expend on pro-European right. causes. So, yeah, you're, you're exactly right. I had one of this, and this may just be a terrible shower thought, but I'm going to say share it within the safe space of the podcast right. room, which is that he, in many ways, is on Europe the mirror image of, of Ed, right? He has a Miliband. Yeah, he has a shadow home secretary who has... An immigration policy that what is softer than his, uh, you know, in and basically things. Look, I don't care about what you know. We've we've got to think about our values. And you have with Ed a shadow home secretary who has a who had an ideally had in their view had a tougher immigration policy than the one Ed was willing to. um, Mm. And essentially, you have two leaders who have the same through line, although neither of them would put it this way, which is not one vote lost for Brexit. Uh, yeah, and essentially, they, their view is that like they are, then it's not what they got into politics to care about. Uh, it's happened, and they are therefore not going to waste any energy on it. The thing about that, though, is I am yet to hear a plausible counterfactual in which Jeremy Corbyn ends up in Downing Street, and that in of itself does not lead to a softer or no Brexit. Right, so there's no deal in which he wins a majority. Well, then. You arrive in Downing Street to the backdrop of crisis. Yeah, then there's, you know, I just don't, there's no pressure on him within his party desperate to strike free trade deals with Singapore. So why wouldn't you just toss the customs union, you know, leaving the customs union over the, you know, over the sea wall, as it were? Well, we'll return to this, no doubt, a million, million, million more times until we eventually die. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Helen Lewis, and my co-presenter, Stephen Bush. We're recorded by India Bork and produced by Caroline Crampton. Our theme music is by the Underscore Orchestra, licensed under Creative Commons. Why not try Stephen's football podcast, which he does with Jason? It's called Political Football, and you can find it on your podcast provider of choice. 